The future of barbecue is already here at thebarbecueguru.com. From the amazing guru that monitors and controls the temperatures of any charcoal, wood, or electric pit to the Caldera Tallboy Knockdown Smoker. Yes, it breaks down and stores flat, yet it's still a robust, sturdy, portable cooker and smokehouse. It also serves as an efficient temperature-controlled convection oven using wood or charcoal. The Tallboy is designed to fit all catering pans and can be used as a warming oven. You can cook in any style you choose, like ribs, chicken, jerky, vegetables, smoked cheese, whatever you want. Take it to KCBS competitions and unload it from the truck of your car. TheBarbecueGuru.com is where you'll find the Caldera 3-Bay Caterer. It's stainless steel and uses charcoal or sterno for chafing purposes. And it doubles as a three-bay sink or wash station with hot water and knocks down in seconds with no tools required for transportation and storage. The future of barbecue is here at thebarbecueguru.com. That's www.thebbqguru.com. Or call 1-800-288-GURU. Welcome to the Barbecue Roundtable, a monthly show where a select panel of guests talk about a specific barbecue topic. From backyard pitmasters to professionals on the competition barbecue circuit, there's sure to be a wide range of opinions and views on how to prepare the best barbecue. If you're interested in participating in a future roundtable show, visit our homepage at www.bbq-the-numeral-4-the-letter-u.com and click on the email button to submit your request. And now, here's the host of the outrageously successful Barbecue Central podcast show, who will now be acting as the moderator of the Barbecue Roundtable, Greg Rempe. Thank you, Jim Morgan, and welcome, everybody, to the Barbecue Roundtable, a monthly show where a select panel of guests will talk about a specific barbecue topic. On the agenda for this evening is brisket. Now, without a doubt, brisket is probably considered one of the more difficult pieces of meat to get consistently good results on on a regular basis. So I have assembled a brisket dream team of sorts. The panel members tonight are all very visible on the KCBS competition circuit, and they have agreed to sit down with me and share their secrets and tips and techniques. So let's take a minute or two to get to know the panel a little bit better. Here's Jim Morgan with the intros. Our first panel member began competing in barbecue competitions in 1996, where she managed a first place in pork at the American Royal National Championship. She also runs two very successful barbecue restaurants, runs a barbecue catering business, and still manages to find time to appear on a number of TV cooking shows, including the Food Network and the Today Show. If you need someone that works well under pressure, give her a call. Just don't order the lobster. Here's Miss Woodchick's barbecue herself, Leanne Whippin. Our next guest is becoming a regular on the Barbecue Roundtable. He was left in the breeze by the other pork experts on the last show and pleaded to have another go at it with the beef folks. The mere mention of Carabuda pork or Kobe beef brisket leaves no doubt as to who I'm talking about. We're going to get minion-y with it. Direct from the Pacific Northwest, again, here's Jim Minion. Our third panel member has been competing in barbecue competitions since 1982. He's an author three times over, holds barbecue competition cooking classes all over the country, and is the company chef for the Big Green Egg. Of course, his biggest achievement was becoming a doctor without having gone to medical school. He still maintains he's pre-med. If you're in a life-threatening predicament, don't ask if there's a doctor in the house. But if your brisket's on its deathbed, forget 911. Dial D for Dr. Barbecue. Here's Ray Lampy. And our final guest tonight has extensive experience with fire. When he's not out lighting the competition circuit ablaze with his turn-ins, he's risking life and limb putting out real fire. Aside from being a welder, he's also a premier pit maker with his partner company, Cook Shack Incorporated. And in his spare time, he helps international barbecue teams cheat to win the Jack Daniels Grand Championship. 
allegedly a man you can call Fast Eddie anywhere except the bedroom. Here's Ed Fast Eddie Morin. So now we know the panel just a bit better. Before we get started, we're going to go and survey the panel and see what everybody's cooking on. Up first, Jim Minion. Uh, well, I'm cooking on a close offset, a couple of ranch kettles, WSMs, Primos, and a big green egg and a Traeger mobile unit. Leanne Whippen? At the restaurant, I have an Old Hickory ELEDX, and then I take my Jedmaster to competitions, and also I have an Oklahoma Joe, I tell. Fast Eddie. I cook on pellets, the FEC 100, 500, and 750. Anything else? That's it. Ray Lampy. Big green egg, of course. But if you if you sneak around my trailer, you'll always see an FV100 there, too. Does anyone use remote thermometers or any type of pit temperature control device when you're cooking? And we'll start with Leanne Whippen. Uh, no, I do not. Um, I'm not a big believer in them yet, although I've been... You know, tr people are trying to convince me to try it. Um, I, I like just to stay close to my cooker and watch what's going on and be part of the whole method rather than have some device do it for me. Fast Eddie? Uh, I'm a big believer in devices and toys. <laughs> FEC 100's got the most sophisticated controller on a solid fuel cooker on the market today. It's adjustable by two degrees, and you even have the probe capability to cook to the internal temperature of your meat. But I don't use that. I still cook the old way and touch and feel and uh, stick your thermometer in it. The temperature control device you were just talking about, though, that's just specific to your cooker. That's not like a Maverick remote thermometer or a, a Guru pit temperature control device type thing. It's its own control device. I mean, it's, it's, computer, it's computer controlled. I control the air on the fire. Um, I mean, it does it all internally. We worked two years to get this device up and running, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's probably the most sophisticated one on them. It, yeah, it's, it doesn't read by uh, remote though. No. Ray Lampy? No, I don't. I don't use any of that stuff. I, you know, I work for Big Green Egg, and I my eggs work just fine overnight. I may have to look at them every three four hours and tweak them a little bit, and they work fine. So I have a hard time promoting a product that makes them a little bit better for a lot of money. As for the readout devices, I don't use those either, because frankly, I just don't care what temperature my brisket is four hours or six hours into the cooking doesn't much matter to me you know i cook overnight generally so in the morning i'll start checking them checking it with my thermopen but over the course of the cook I, I just couldn't care less what temperature it is so no i don't use any of that stuff jim minion i don't use remote thermometers i don't i don't find them real reliable without spending a lot of money and i haven't gone out and do, done it i do have a guru that i've used for only time i ever use it is for cold smoking if i'm going to keep my temperatures down it does a good job of doing that for long periods of time but for normal barbecue i don't use it now before we get into the big you know pre-cook cook and after cook instructions here on the brisket round table i wanted to ask a general question here uh, to you professionals uh, does anybody have aside from jim minion of course who will have a thought on this but uh, does anybody else have any thoughts about kobe beef or prime briskets and we'll start with ray lampy I have cooked a little bit of that stuff, as a matter of fact, with Jim, because those guys have access to a lot of it up that way. And I wouldn't spend the money for it, that's for sure. To me, a brisket is, it's not like cooking a piece of roast beef. What a brisket is all about, that collagen breaking down and the, the gelatinous feel, the mouth feel and the taste. 
uh, like a short rib, which is something people are probably more familiar with. If you don't have all that that con connective tissue, it just will never have the texture of a brisket. To to take a Kobe or a high quality prime brisket, it's almost like just changing the cut of meat. You're then almost cooking a flank steak or a, a piece of roast beef or something, and it could make a pretty good product, but it won't have that broken down connective tissue, gelatinous mouth feel, beautiful thing that a brisket is when it's cooked properly. Fast Eddie. I'm a, I like cooking certified Angus, which is guaranteed to be choice or higher, basically, is what that means. I'll agree with Ray there. I've not really got into, I have played around with them some. I think the texture is just a little bit too far out there for your everyday judge. Not to say it won't make a good product. I've had some customer, I got one customer, he doesn't cook a lot anymore, but he was out of Texas, and he cooked a lot of Wagyu, and I, I'll tell you, every time he'd get in the top five pretty daggone often in a, in a contest with his uh, beef brisket, cooking that stuff. I'm big on certain size and, and case it, I buy by the case and that kind of stuff. If we're going to get into that question here in a bit, uh, I'll just stick with choice or uh, higher uh, grade. Leanne Whippin? Totally agree with the boys. I go with choice. Um, I've tried prime, and I don't like cooking with them. I feel like I need to cook them to get to a higher temperature, and they have a shorter life of being right where they need to be. So I definitely am a choice believer. Jim Minion. Well, I've cooked a lot of them because they are available out here, and I don't pay much more for them than you would choice beef out here in a lot of cases. What I found, though, is, is you do have to cook them differently. Low cooks, 190 degrees. What Ray was saying about mouthfeel is absolutely true. Uh, if you cook them at a high temperature or let the temperatures get up, it'll literally take the fat out of it because there's so much of it, and it does change the feel. But cooking them low, real low, lower than normal, They've scored really well for us. I know we took two first places last year, and we were always in the top five, six every contest with them. So they definitely work, but it is a different cook. Are these type of meats readily available to anybody that wants to use them, or do you have to know somebody or know a specialty place to get these type of items? Out here in the West, you can actually – a lot of the growers are in – Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana. So they're available to us. I have a wholesaler that I can get them. I can I can basically order it in anytime I want it. And our catering company has used it exclusively, and it's doing really well for us. They're becoming more available around the country. But once you get out of this area, I think the prices go up drastically. I have a question for Jim. Don't you think that because the the judges up there probably see a lot more of it because of the availability for you guys, that it's probably a lot more they're a lot more receptive to it. I I know that we've had we had a cook from the Northwest that took them back to the Jack and finished in the top ten a couple of years ago. I took them into California, our last cook of the year, uh, Viejas, and it took a first place. And I don't know how much they see down there. But I know up here in the Northwest, there's a number of teams using them. So it's still you still have to cook them correctly. You still it's still the same best basic techniques and the same physics. It all applies. It's just that you have to change it to not overcook it because you can overcook them really quickly. Do any other of the panel members find that it's more expensive where they are or that it's harder to get? It's way more expensive for me to get, and it's difficult for me to get. But I can get it just because of my avenues through the restaurant. Here in Kansas City, uh, my wholesaler can get it. I'm only talking 30, 40 cents a pound more on the brisket. Other cuts, a whole lot more, but on brisket, it doesn't seem like it's a huge, huge difference. Right. I don't think I could get them down here. I think it would be really hard to get them down here. I actually got some real good quality recently. 
but it was because the wholesaler had brought in a truckload of he had to bring in a truckload from this ranch in Colorado and he had I asked him why he had all these briskets and that he was selling cheap and he said that he had just had to fill up the truck see there's not a lot of value in the briskets in those high end uh, animals because the value is all in the loin you know the the <clears throat> the strip loin is where all the money is a lot of it gets shipped to Japan and or ends up in high end restaurants here in the states and the rest of the animal just doesn't have a whole lot of value. It ends up getting ground up or just sold off. Like Jim said, they can get briskets at the regular price. But I'm guessing the loins for those Wagyu cattle up there are probably a premium price. The, the rest of the animal just doesn't have a whole lot of value. And that's absolutely true. As you, as you move up into the state cuts and stuff, the price is um, it's probably as much as it is in the rest of the country. Um, it's nothing to see a $100 steak and depending on the grade they grade them differently too the, in america we use about four there's four different things they take into consideration the japanese take into consideration there's a 12 point system so their system's more refined too it really the the real ex great cuts do a lot of it does leave the country still and you will pay ungodly dollars for it all right so now we'll move to the pre-cook events First question is, do you use whole packers or flats when you're cooking? And we'll start with Fast Eddie. I buy whole packers. Uh, I don't cook them as holes. I I used to do that. I feel like in KCBS cook-offs that I, need, I want to turn in two different types of the product. I want to turn in the flat as sliced, and then I want to take the uh, point of the uh, brisket and I want to make my burn ends out of it. So I feel like it makes a better product cooking them two separately, but I buy it as a whole. And when I'm looking to purchase, I like 15 to 16 pounders and I buy by the case. So I know what my packing dates are. And I like to cook them at about 40 to 42 days of age. Ray Lampy. I, I buy whole briskets probably 98% of the time. Once in a great while I buy points, but it's a, uh special catering job or something, but generally whole big briskets. A lot of my brisket opinions and stuff are, are heavily influenced by Fast Eddie. We've been friends for a long time, and Eddie knew how to cook briskets well before I did, and I've learned a lot from him. So I'm sort of the same way. Um, I've cooked them whole for a lot of years. Just recently, it seems like there's a trend of cutting the point off and really kind of cooking it on its own separately it maybe maybe i just didn't know about it for the last few years but i think it's a, a fairly recent uh trend that a lot of people are doing it i'm sure there are guys that have always been doing it but i i've cooked uh i've cooked whole briskets and i've cooked them whole for a long time jim minion normally for contests i cook whole i cook flats when it's um appropriate for catering but for contests i normally cook whole. and to be honest with you i'm highly influenced by ray and eddie too so a lot of our theories are probably very very similar are you guys from uh, west virginia or something yeah, really <laughs> <laughs> leanne i definitely cook them whole and i i wouldn't cut them up because i think the point adds moisture to the flat side of it haven't tried that though. I also throw on some flats just to cover all my bases, but generally my turn-in for contests are, you know, sliced off the flat side, and I'm kind of like with the burn-end theory to, you know, add some of the point on there too. Do any of you, when you're cooking the whole packer, separate the point at this stage of the game or not? And we'll start with Leanne. As I said, no, I don't do that. It's it's the whole entity, and that's the way I do it. Fast Eddie. Yeah, I, I separate it. Uh, I'm very picky about how I separate it. I agree with Leanne 
I leave as much fat on there, and where I do probably get my slices for turn-in still is right about where the flat came over the point. I probably have about a quarter inch of uh, fat still left on it uh, after I take it off. But the uh, point of the brisket, I trim that up to make it look like a deli trim uh, when it goes on the pit. That, that thing is as lean as I possibly can get that part of it. Uh, Ray Lampy. I'm doing a little bit of a, like I said, uh, it's sort of a new thing for me, but I wouldn't say I'm separating it. What I'm doing is really cutting the end of the point off, the big the big meaty part of the point. I'm cutting it off, so I'm leaving um, the thinner part of the point and all that fat, kind of like what Eddie was saying. I got a feeling we're doing a similar thing. So it doesn't really affect it. I'm still getting it to cook my flat uh, in conjunction with all that fat and the greasy point part that's up against the flat i'm just cutting the end off and then kind of babying it so i i guess i am yes i'm separating it but not not in the traditional fashion where i'm separating the two muscles i'm just cutting the big meaty knob off at the end of the point jim minion i cook them flat fat side down but i'll trim the fat off of the point in so that it's more meat is exposed so i don't necessarily take it off the off the flat though and um i'll kind of doctor it from there and for a turn in rather than maybe chopping it or pulling long fingers of that muscle off. Um, and it seems to be working very well. But I fill up usually the bottom of the box almost full of burn-ins or the point section and the uh, slices on top of that. Do you trim your briskets fast, Eddie? Well, I would say, you know, for competition, and we're just talking competition cooking, I probably size them and trim now, I like an eighth to a quarter inch of cover of fat left on it, but I'll, I'll size it to, to the box. You know, I mean, some of those big briskets will get way out there, and, and where they thin out on either side, I'll, I'll square them up so I get a nice cut so it'll fit in the box. And you really, that way, you know, the smoke ring shows all around it real nice, and it, it's the right size for it to go in. It's a shame to see as much of a 16-pound brisket that I pitch. And then, like I said, on the point, because I have separated the two muscles, that one I will trim as much fat off of it as I really possibly almost can get. And it will look like a, a like a deli trim brisket, you know, that's in the case is, is how far I'll actually take it down to. Jim Minion? I size them also, and especially with the Kobe and the prime beef, it seems to be wider. Uh, to begin with, so you do need to size it. I trim nothing but some of the hard fat off. I leave almost all of it on, uh, except for that point in where I, I basically make it bald. The rest of the fat's going to come off it after we pull them off the, when we get them ready to go into the box. Leanne? I trim it to about a quarter inch on the flat side, and the point I trim it a little bit further, maybe an eighth of an inch. I don't buy as big a brisket as fast Eddie does. I, I'm like more of a go for 13 pounders and it'll usually fit a little bit better into the box doctor i don't trim the the main part of the brisket at all or well a little bit but very little <clears throat> i trim the that knob that i was talking about the part of the point that i cut off i'll trim that down like eddie said to bald but the rest of it i trim almost none at all i'll clean up the edges i i don't try to size the brisket what i do is i'll take the big long slices and when i'm done i will pick which end looks better and generally one of the ends will be kind of falling apart. It, it makes my life a little easier, and I'll just cut them then. So when I turn my slices in, they will have one cut side that will be a flat, clean cut, and the other side will be the natural crusted-up 
end. And I, I've always been okay with that. I never really had any trouble with that. I, I've seen guys try to size them, but I just because then if I one end that gets a little overcooked and is crumbling off, my slices are going to be too short. So I'd rather give myself the opportunity to have one good side. And I, I don't think that's ever hurt me. You set your briskets out uh, on purpose ahead of time to let it warm up at all, and we'll start with Leanne. I used to, but now I really don't. I, I don't like them ice cold when I'm putting them in for competition, but I'll pull them out of maybe a half hour before. Um, but, no, I don't bring them to room temperature. Are you not a uh, subscriber to the fact that the colder you put your meat on the cooker, the better the smoke ring is in? Uh, that's the theory these days. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. I think it, if the meat is a little cooler, you'll get a better smoke ring. Would you like to recan on your answer then? Well, <laughs> leave her alone. Nobody has for her. Yeah, leave me alone. I'll answer. I'll answer for her. Thank the you, Dead Master, Dead Master gives a kick-ass smoke ring in anyway, so it doesn't matter. Doctor, I, I do put my meat on ice cold. Um, Honestly, I had a Jedmaster before, and it really was irrelevant because it really does create a kick-ass smoke ring. But then I was cooking on a pellet cooker for a few years, and the pellet cooker, it, well, the older ones, anyway, the new ones are quite different, but the older ones, it didn't really, wasn't the greatest smoke ring cooker. So I found that if I put the meat on ice cold, it helped me enhance the smoke ring. And I got in the habit of doing that. And now I cook on the eggs where you get a substantial smoke ring. It kind of doesn't matter, but I'm in the habit of putting them on ice cold. But this theory that letting a brisket, okay, so it's 40 degrees in my refrigerator and it's 72 on the counter, so and it's 225 in my cooker. So if I let this brisket warm up to 72 and I put it in the 225 cooker, it doesn't have any problem with that change of temperature. However, if it was 30 degrees colder at 40, I'm led to believe it does has it goes through seizures and all kinds of fits that that create a brisket that'll be inedible down the road, which I think is just ridiculous because that first you ever look at a brisket after it's been in there for 20 minutes, it's just laying there, man. It's just you know mine probably goes from 40 to 72 in about the first 20 minutes anyway. And I just think that's a bunch of nonsense. That's some fantasy guys have dreamt up. You know, there's a lot of stuff like that that just becomes Internet lore, and, and you know, everybody just believes it. It's kind of funny to listen to these guys not talk about when you ask us about the pit-tending devices and, and all these thermometers with all the wires on them and shit. You know, you think everybody uses those things, and here you got four of the best cooks in the country, and we don't even own one between us. <laughs> Jim Minion? Uh, what was the question? <laughs> do you let your brisket warm up at all no no um uh using a close it smoke ring's not a problem at all but using wsms or uh, the traeger i find i i'm a guaranteed uh smoke ring if i if i uh, put them on cold it's not supposed to make a difference but we all know that that's part of barbecue lore too fast eddie absolutely put them on cold the cooler that is with the nitrates in the atmosphere will help develop that smoke ring. The longer the term it takes for, I believe in what you hear and say, you know, when it longer term it takes for it to get to 120, it makes a difference. How long before you put the brisket on the cooker do you uh, give it a rub? And we'll start with Fast Eddie. I don't like to do it overnight. I will rub up, oh, probably six, eight hours. You know, I, I like to get it, if I get to an event and can get my meat inspected at noon, brisket's the first thing I go to working on. I'll get the rub on it, oh, probably seven, about seven hours or so before I get it on the pit. I usually start cooking my brisket about 8 o'clock at night for a one thirty turn-in uh, the next day. 
Dr. Barbecue. I don't, uh, I kind of, I kind of rub them when, whatever it's convenient for me. At a cook-off, you don't really have the opportunity to rub it too far in advance, but I don't see any advantage to that anyway. Uh, much like the, um, you know, the concept of the shocking of the meat, the first few hours or five, six hours, that meat's just kind of laying in there in the cooker anyway. So it's kind of got its time to get to know each other. So anywhere from three hours to five minutes before is probably best for me. Leanne? I'm a believer of right after meat inspection to get the rub on it. The longer it sits in that dry marinade, um, obviously the the more the meat's going to absorb the flavors um, like any marinade. But I don't, you know, as far as, you know, cooking backyard, um, I'll just throw the rub on right before I put the brisket on. And I do the same thing at the restaurant. I don't sit there and let it sit a day before in the rub. But in competition, I think, it, you know, it's good to have at least seven or eight hours of, of time on it. Jiminy? Uh, for competition, it's been running six, seven hours. It's brisket's the first thing I'll do after meat inspection. Also, if I'm doing it in the backyard, it's going to be whatever's convenient. With our catering company, since we're doing Kobe's and all this kind of stuff, we actually go to a lot of the same type of preparations we do for contests, and we're charging top dollar, twenty-five dollar plate type stuff. So you do take the care. Um, I won't size them. I'll basically handle them the same way I would a, a contest. Do any of you inject or marinate prior to going on the smoker? And we'll start with Fast Eddie. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> and actually, Ray's the one that got me on it, but I changed a little bit from what he what he used to do. I don't know if he's still doing it or not. In uh, 2000, I think it was, I'm looking back here at the trophy pile, I was the KCBS beef champion in 2000. I don't cook beef today like I did back then because, uh, you know, it's been an evolution of change. you got to have the phosphates, I believe, this day uh, to a certain extent to help uh, manufacture that good, deep, beefy flavor. And what I'm talking about is like the Fab B products, and I use the Fab B light. I mix it a lot different than what he recommends. I, I mix it pretty light. I like to shoot it, like I said, the first thing I go to prepping, and uh, when I do shoot it, I try to get it in there, not a whole lot, but and then I'll actually, you know, try to squeeze it and twist it around, and uh, what I'm trying to do is get it blended through the brisket real well so it doesn't show a lot of tracking marks at all, but I do use the Fab B light, and I mix it pretty, uh, pretty watery and shoot it right away don't let it set when you start letting that uh, uh, kind of the terms going around the culinary industry with phosphates is food glue and when you start letting that stuff set uh, much time it just really really thickens up and it won't give you the the time that you need for it to try to blend through every strand of muscle in that brisket but yeah I do Ray Lampy no I don't use any of that stuff <laughs> <laughs> okay. What? I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> what happened with me is kind of like what Eddie was saying. You know, and we both we have we have all saw this. And uh, I used to be a pretty good brisket cook, and and never injecting a brisket sounded crazy. And I found that I thought my briskets were just equally good, equally good, and my scores were slipping, and, and I I couldn't understand it. And so I started poking around a little bit, kind of figure out what everybody else was doing, and. And I started realizing how many guys were using Fab B. 
And so I, I went and got some, and I started playing around with it. And, and like Eddie says, I, I think that it, it's pretty hard not to anymore because the stuff is just really – it changes the brisket. It makes it – it holds the moisture. It makes it – it's amazing, really, when you slice a brisket without using fab and you leave it sit on the board for 15 minutes after turning or something, you come back and that stuff's all getting dried up. And when you use the fab, it's not. It's amazing. 15 minutes later, it still looks pretty good like it did. Um, the stuff really has an effect on the meat, and and then the flavor for sure. If you saw the the All Star Barbecue Showdown the first year when I was cooking against Myron Mixon in Texas, me and Myron were up all night partying and what they're you know watching what we were doing, and Myron injected his with a bunch of fruit juice and stuff like he always does, and I had the Fab B, and he knew it, and we we talked about it, and I he tasted it, and we're sitting there watching him judge and. Ed Roy, you know, Ed's bad about this. He kept, you know, well, I'm looking for this beefy flavor in brisket. And, and of course, Rocky's going along with him and Felder. And they taste the Texas guy's briskets, and they said, well, you know, it would taste all washed out. And they tasted Myron's, and they couldn't figure out what that taste was, but it wasn't the beefy taste they were looking for. And we're laughing, knowing full well what's about to happen. And sure enough, they taste mine, and they're like, now this is that beefy, natural beef flavor that I'm looking for when I eat brisket. And we're laughing about it. And after the fact, somebody mentioned Fab B, and Bill Felder is telling these folks, oh, that's just some nonsense. You don't need to use that stuff. And I went and I told them, I said, Bill, I just buffaloed all three of your asses into winning the 3000 bucks <laughs> with Fab B. So I think that the stuff is is pretty effective. Um, on the other hand, things are changing now. You know, it's become so common that I'm not sure it, it, it could be swinging around to where the judges are getting so used to it that if you could figure out a way to do something different and keep it nice and juicy, that may be the next wave. I know there's a lot of guys uh, soaking slices and and I think even cooking slices in a, a stock of some sort that doesn't involve the fab, and I think that may be the next wave. But over the last couple of years, the, the best cooks have been using fab B. Leanne? I, I don't use it. It's something that I do want to try. Um, my beef scores have remained the same over the past 10 years, but I think just to bring it up a notch, I need to at least check it out. I'm not against it. Um, you know, if it's going to make it taste beefier, you know, I'm all for it. But I don't marinate, and I do not inject, but things will change. <laughs> Jim Minion? Uh, I've used Fab B. When you look at what it does, uh, I can see actually tons of uses for it. it. It definitely increases yield if you're looking at it in a catering standpoint. It definitely keeps the meat juicier. The science is good. I use it when I'm cooking uh, cabs or choice brisket. I don't use it on the Kobe. It doesn't work well there. Uh, the flavor isn't the same, uh, so it's I don't use it in that product. Um, but I have gone to using um, marinades, uh, basically broths that we use in, in place of sauces with the Kobe that I think are basically exactly what Ray was talking about, and they work extremely, extremely well. Uh, for example, you go get au jus from a prime uh, beef and put it on brisket. It, uh, it works extremely well. That's going to do it for part one of the Brisket Roundtable. Be sure to join us for part two for the rest of the conversation, and we'll see you on the backside.